Stocks, let's talk. Stocks, let's talk. Stocks, let's talk. Let's talk. Let's talk. We're back. This is Stocks, Let's Talk. I'm Steve Healy. We have a wonderful guest today. Charlie Cheever is here. Charlie has been, uh, well, Charlie, you worked at Facebook. You were a founder of companies. You continue to create uh, interesting things in what we might call the Silicon Valley space. We're going to talk about all of that. Is that an accurate very basic intro to your life. Before yeah, it's a pretty good sense of me. I work in Silicon Valley and done that for my whole career. I'm really happy to have you here because anytime I have a question about like computers down to like, how do I work my computer? You're the guy that I get in touch with. And also on bigger questions, where is technology going? What do we have to worry about? What are our problems? What's the future going to be? You're the guy I'm calling. And now we brought you onto the show to give some of your insights on that and how it can extend into the stock market. A reminder before we begin, this is an entertainment show. No one here knows anything. None of us have any kind of certification to talk about financial advice. We're not giving you any financial advice. This is all uh, intended to amuse and entertain the amateur. Charlie, would you agree with that? Strongly. Okay, cool. So let's go back. You're one of those kids who like taught yourself computer programming by age 12 or something. And then you went to Harvard and you learned uh, from the computer program there. What happened then? After Harvard, I think. Yeah. Like, you went to work at Facebook, right? Was that pretty quickly after? Did you do something I got else a job first at Amazon because that was, if you remember like back that long ago, like when we were in college, there's like original dot-com bubble burst and like all of, this whole tech thing fell apart. So when I graduated, it was kind of dumped into the trough of like, there are no startups that exist. And except for this one called Google, that's going to hire like two people. And like the only company hiring anyone is Microsoft. So actually like I, I just went home. I didn't have a job. I just like played on a club ultimate Frisbee team in Pittsburgh and lived in my parents' home house. Pittsburgh. Okay. So this is yeah. like 2003, 2004. Yeah. And then um, a guy we'd gone to school with, uh, had interned at Amazon and they were hiring people and he gave me a referral there and I passed the interview and just like flew out to Seattle and moved there like in sometime in August. But really it was so, like an incredibly different market where now like, uh, you know, people are like going through boot camps to learn to code and people are, you know, like some people are going out and telling coal miners, like your jobs are going away, go learn to code so you can get a job and be a productive member of society. But I think like at that, that was this little window of weird time where people had like, gotten off the original hype train and was kind of like, well, I don't know what you can do if you're a computer programmer unless you get a job at Microsoft. Gotcha. Now, by the way, you've been teaching me how to code, which I really appreciate. I have wanted to learn from you. When people talk about how to code, like, what do they mean? And you started teaching me some task-based coding. And I think what I took away is like, you know, it's pretty hard to get good at it. It's going to take at least a year to two years to get competent, I would say. It's not really that helpful to tell a coal miner to, a coal miner to learn to code. Yeah. Although at the same time, I feel like if you have that me mentality about it, I think that you're going to miss a lot because... The way that I learned to code was just that I wanted to like, I saw a book at the library that was just like how to make your own computer games. And I was like, oh, like that sounds awesome. I love playing computer games. I love going to my neighbors and playing video games with them. And uh, I just had in my imagination a bunch of different video games I wanted to make. And so I took this book out and then the first page of it just said, you need to learn how to program in basic so you can use this book. And I got this other book, went back to the library, I got this other book and started going to school early and like typing in the programs. I didn't really learn how to program for a while, 
But even the act of just like typing in five lines copied directly from a book and then seeing like a rocket ship click, 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 click up the top of the screen, like I did something and like something happened. And I feel like, I don't know, like there's a really big spectrum here where you can like, you can actually accomplish certain things by just learning a little bit without having to know the entire universe of every possibility of how to do everything. And so, I don't know, I think that like on some sort of abstract level, even putting in like a formula in an Excel spreadsheet is like programming or something, you know, and Ooh, people cool. are certain, certainly comfortable doing that. And so there's all kinds of things that people can accomplish. If you just pick up something you really want to do and just learn what you need to do to get that done, that's a really good starting point. I started looking at TikTok and I don't know if this is because of me or my algorithm or whatever, but I, every so often I get a TikTok that's like, I, I blew my boss's mind when I showed him this Excel. And it's like little Excel tricks to like transpose dates and stuff. Yeah. And I, thought that, I thought it was a cool little teaching tool, but I didn't know people were out there using TikTok to share their Excel tricks. Yeah, I think TikTok has gotten gigantic and there's all kinds of weird niche content around that. Like okay, I so I, go, ahead. go ahead. Sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Oh, I just said I sent you a... I, I found a TikTok that was about like uh, the software tools that my company works on. And oh, I, didn't cool. there, I didn't even know there was like a little subgenre <laughs> of expo coding TikTok. Okay, we're um, going to get up to expo, but now you're at Amazon. Uh, it's 2004. What year are you working at Amazon? Uh, Give us your impression. Could you tell this was a behemoth? Was it already taken over the world or what? It was already, I mean, it was already the biggest um, sort of like online bookseller. And so it was like, you know, it was a real company. It was already publicly traded or whatever. But it was, it was very interesting because it had already gone through like these deep cuts of layoffs. And so there was like this sort of one class of people who'd been there like six years and had like packed the first Christmas worth of books on their knees in the warehouse and like kind of knew everything worked and been there. And there was this like gap of like three years where they, you know, when you do layoffs, you often like get rid of the junior people first. And they'd had to do this because of the dot-com, even though Amazon is a tremendous company, it had to lay off a whole, like probably half the company or maybe even more, I don't know the exact number. And so then there was this huge number of people who had started like, you know, six months before, like I had. Um, and uh, that was interesting and kind of weird. But I think it, one thing that made a huge impression on me there is um, Amazon is one of the only places I've ever been at, I can think of two, where like the motto or like the, the sort of stated mission statement, like actually like permeated the whole culture and was really like a thing. And like every single all hands, uh, Jeff Bezos would get there and say like, you know, Amazon is here to be like the world's most customer centric company. And like, I think when I first went into that kind of meeting, I remember sort of being like, come on, like get off this like high horse of like grandiosity. And like, this is an online bookstore that sells, you know, like a tiny percentage of the, the market. And, but like, even just being there like two years and just seeing in meetings when people, you know, like one of the things that I worked on was like uh, sending out emails to people who weren't going to get, like they'd ordered Christmas presents that were supposed to be guaranteed to arrive by Christmas. But, so, you know, 99, and it's like a 99% sure that we can do this, but, you know, 1% of people still adds up to a lot when there's a lot of people ordering. And so the, you know, there were a couple thousand emails that we had to send out that were like, we're so sorry, your thing isn't going to arrive until after Christmas. We just wanted to let you know, here's some you know, ways to mitigate this, here's some credits, or I forget exactly what we, we would give them. Um, but like the group of people working on that, like they, you know, people would stay late and like would like call people in warehouses and be like, is this package going to make it onto the truck? And like, you know, really go like a weird extra mile just to like take care of customers 
and it like you see other people doing it and it kind of becomes like a thing and, and kind of everybody's doing it and it actually was like the only other place i can think of where that was really true was this summer camp i went to called camp dudley where the motto was like the other fellow first and i felt like all these kids would like behave or like i know you're a bully when you go back to middle school but you're a cool dude this summer um and I, that really made a huge impression on me just the way that like having this core value hammered into people's heads actually really paid off and made a difference and like turned people from like one thing into something slightly different that was more customer focused that is awesome okay so the the regular message from the ceo trickled down to everybody at amazon that like this is a customer focused company and you really feel like bezos himself was inspiring that and it was it was working yeah just like hammering repetition of that and like being really serious about it Okay, cool. Now, at this time, were you paying any attention? To, this is a publicly traded company. Are you getting involved in the stock market? Did you have like stock options? Where Where I is had, your relationship? There's a stock market. I had market some small stock. number of, of stock unit. Like one thing that happens with uh, at least tech companies is there's often a progression of things. So if you're, I don't know how much you want to go into the weeds here, but I'm about to. The weeds, take one of the weeds. So like when a company starts, um, you know, like, it's kind of nothing. And so then you make it. So let's say you and I start a company. There's some, we like fill out the paperwork to incorporate and we say, okay, there's going to be a thousand shares or 10 million shares. You can make up whatever number pretty much, but they'll usually do round numbers. And let's say we split it 50, 50. So make, and we have a thousand shares. Then you have 500 and I have 500 and we just have the shares and the, and you make up some value of the company. That's maybe like a hundred dollars or $10 or something. And so then we each pay the company, you know, five bucks or 50 bucks or whatever for these shares. And now we own them. And so then if they become really valuable, then that's what our tax basis is and those other kind of things. But then, um, and if you, if we hire people really, really on, you can actually sell them shares. And so you can just say, okay, like this company is basically worth nothing because Steve and I started it 15 minutes ago. And, you know, it's just the two of us sitting in our living rooms or whatever. Um, so there's not really worth anything. So we can sell you these shares for the same, you know, penny a share that we bought them for or a 10th of a cent or a hundredth of a cent or whatever, whatever your lawyer says it's defensible. And then, um, so that you can set like really early on people buy shares. And then later on you move to stock options when when like you start to become a real company and auditors will say, hey, this is actually, you know, probably a $30 million company or a hundred million dollar company or a billion dollar company. Employees that you hire, you could say, hey, you can buy these shares, but they would cost you $150,000 to buy. And they kind of go, oh, I don't have, you're only paying me $100,000 a year how could I possibly buy $150,000 of shares right now? And so you give them options where you say, hey, here's an option to buy this stock at this price. And so if it goes up, you can buy it there. Um, the other thing that's good about that is there's a limit to how many shareholders a private company can have, at least in America, regulated by the SEC, and or I don't know if it's the SEC, but some one of these regulatory bodies limits it to some number, like I think it's either 300 or 500. And so you actually don't want these people to own their shares right away because then they would count against the shareholder limit. And then you'd have to kind of like, get an exemption or an extension or deal with all kinds of other, or go, or go public. And so then later on, once you get to be a big enough company and this, the share price is going up and down and maybe like, and so Amazon was in this position where like this share price had gone to the moon and then had come crashing back to earth and got, and kind of got up and down a bunch since then. And so there were actually a bunch of people who got snared in this thing where they had stock options at this like super high valuation when Amazon was on its way to the moon. And then a lot of them would like, you know, maybe they left the company or they just chose to early exercise, which sometimes companies like you, and they paid the money to buy the options on the stock and bought this super expensive stock. 
thinking that they were like just investing in their company. And then the stock, and like the stock market completely crashes, even though Amazon's still one of the better companies out there, all the boats sink. And then a bunch of people went bankrupt, apparently, even at the best companies oh, of that era, yeah. because they had bought in and like, and they couldn't afford to pay like, um, there's a certain, like if you bought it uh, halfway to the moon and then taxes become due at three quarters of the way to the moon, right. and then before you can sell the shares, the whole thing comes crashing down. You can end up in this right. squeezed position where you're really screwed and you owe more money in taxes than you can, than all of your shares are worth. Wow. And, you, you always see those headlines really of like, them. what if you'd bought Amazon at $2, but the, you missed the people that did that and actually went bankrupt because they like, because like the they bought at $3 and it crashed to 50 cents. I mean, I don't know the exact numbers, but yeah, like there's, there's really weird dynamics that can happen when the market is super, super volatile. And we haven't really seen, there was a thing in 2008 where, there was sort of a, a dark window of time for about 18 months, but um, I don't think we've ever seen anything in our sort of professional careers quite like that sort of dot-com bust that seemed to really scar a bunch of people. And we never will. Anyway, <laughs> what happened after Amazon? What was your next move? So um, I, uh, one thing I did was just like, I had a lot, you know, I was on the internet a lot because I was being a computer programmer and I found the writing of Paul Graham, who's okay. like the famous, like he started Y Combinator and um, he writes he actually, these essays about he writes, the yeah. founder and he's very yeah. well respected, uh, uh, thoughtful guy, sort of a philosopher right. as well as a venture capitalist, right? Yeah. And he originally was like, I mean, the, the way I originally heard of him is he'd actually written a textbook that was used in one of the computer science classes at at harvard or at least it was like an augmented material i think he'd, or at least is my memory he'd written a book on lisp that i and so i remembered his name from that um and then he'd started a company called viaweb that uh was basically kind of like a shopify of the 90s like you it allowed like kind of an entrepreneur you know a small business owner entrepreneur to kind of set up a website really easily online when in a time when that was like really really hard right um and I think they ended up selling that to Yahoo for $80 million and it became Yahoo store, which was like, I don't think it's really a thing anymore, but for, you know, 10 or 15 years, it was kind of the main sort of storefront thing before Etsy and Shopify and, and Squarespace kind of came along. Um, and Amazon also kind of took over. Uh, and so he had kind of gone through this entrepreneurial journey and, he, and then he had a lot of really good writings, both about sort of theoretical computer science and programming and the way that people approach things and, the similarity to art that, and then also about doing startups. And I uh, really got into his writing about startups and also this other stuff. And so I flew to, they had this like open seminar about startup school and I flew to back to Cambridge and went to this big first startup school of Y Combinator in 2005. It was Science Center B. Um, I think you've probably been in the room. Sure, and, uh, big lecture hall. Yeah, but not, but not so big that, you know, right now if Y Combinator, they can fill a stadium probably. Yeah. And so then I was, I basically like got really inspired and took a bunch of notes and I, I never take notes. Um, and I just thought startups were really great. And I almost did a startup with two friends from college, one of whom was working at Amazon, one of whom I worked in the college newspaper with. And, but I was just going to be like the tech, it was basically like they were kind of like had these ideas and they were going to be co-CEOs and I was going to be sort of like the CTO. And I kind of didn't really want to be the sort of third wheel who was just like had to doing the work to build a website for the, these 
gotcha. people with business ideas. Um, yeah. And so I ended up, but at the same time, Facebook came out and I had signed up for that and just sort of saw it kind of becoming exciting. And I remember, I, especially, it's hard to remember this because it was so long ago, but there was when they added photo tagging mm-hmm. and like all of a sudden, like all these pictures that people had taken of like other people but that had never really been surfaced. Cause like maybe you took a picture of me at a yeah. party or something, but yeah. like never, never sent it to me. All of a sudden yeah. these things kind of got surfaced and there was so many more pictures of people all of a sudden. And I was just like, wow, that's a really great idea. That's really smart. And so um, I had been a teaching assistant for some classes in college. And so the the founders of Facebook were three years younger than, than I am. Uh, they had a recruiter email me to say, Hey, you know, Mark Zuckerberg and Dustin Moskowitz remember you from teaching CS51 in college, the, this project Facebook is taking off. And I eventually emailed them back and ended up working there. You, so you worked at Amazon in 2003 and taught Mark Zuckerberg computer programming. So you were really, you were part of the movement that has been the most dynamic uh, economic movement, certainly of our lifetimes. Uh, but it sounds like it was pretty much by chance. You didn't like intend to uh, do this. You were just following uh, your passions. And... Yeah, although... Um... I definitely had a when at the height of the beginning of the dot com thing. I definitely I remember specifically being in high school, and uh, a guy I ran track and cross country with. His parents were uh, professors at Carnegie Mellon. One was a computer science professor, and one was like an electrical engineering professor. And so we both we were kind of two of the main computer people at our high school. Mm-hmm. And I said, um, I remember just saying like we made this plan, and it was like we're going to. Uh, Let's make a startup. We're gonna we're gonna do something. We'll sell it for like a million dollars, and then we'll use the money from that to start another startup that we're gonna make. It's gonna be a billion dollar startup. <laughs> <laughs> you knew there had to be two. <laughs> Nobody yeah, gets so it right on the first shot. I don't remember why this was the plan instead of just making one, but we definitely had. So like there was something about it, and I always just knew that I, um, like for some reason I just always like I started to teach myself stuff in like elementary school, and then. For, I don't really know why, and then just was always winning the computer awards and things like that in college. So it was really obvious to me that that was where I was going to kind of end up working. You were in sync with what was happening. Okay, tell me about Facebook. This is now, uh, I don't know if it's the biggest, one of the bigger companies in the world. They have three billion, about half the people on planet Earth use Facebook at some point every month. You were there in an earlier stage. Talk to me about what you learned from that. Wow. Um, I think like... I'd say there was a similar uh, thing to an extent where I don't think Facebook is a very customer centric or user centric company at all. I think it's very much about like the network and like serving an individual is kind of an afterthought. Um, but that works for that company. Um, but one thing that I think was exciting <laughs> was exciting was I remember like um, Dustin Moskovitz, who's just like a really good dude and a great leader of people um in one of the first meetings kind of getting up and saying look in a couple of years when there are six billion people on facebook and like pretty much the whole you know 25 people at the all hands or whatever all kind of snickered and we're like okay sure dustin we're at like you know 37 (laughs) colleges right now like we just opened high schools a few months ago like good luck with you know good luck with this master plan but there's something again where like this kind of like insistent belief that and this manifest destiny sort of became 
a self-fulfilling prophecy. And I think I, I wouldn't say that, you know, you can you can apply this to anything. Like you couldn't you and I couldn't just start like a cereal company and then just go tell our employees like when everyone in the world is eating our porridge, right. like it's well, Charlie's. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like I think that it, it was tapping into this sort of underlying truth that like this kind of product that like connects people isn't just a thing that college students and high school students want to do. It's a thing that everybody wants to do. And so yes. like, it, you know, it could have been Facebook, but it could have been someone else if Facebook wasn't as ambitious. It should have been MySpace probably or Friendster. Like those companies had made essentially the same product. It just like Friendster's website took like 67 seconds to load sometimes. And mm -hmm. MySpace was like, constantly getting hacked and just like kind of a mess. But MySpace at one point had like 70 million users compared to less than 10 million for Facebook. And then, you know, I remember just being there and watching like the Facebook grow and grow and grow and MySpace like plateau, plateau, plateau. And then, you know, all of a sudden it was like, oh, in three months, Facebook, we're going to catch MySpace and then it's game over. And then we just knew it would be game over basically. Wow. Cool. Okay. Well, let's race through your career. I know people are dying to get to stock market talk and we will, but this is all important biographical information. We're placing Charlie in his life and his career. We've already heard two fantastic anecdotes about two of the greatest companies of the 21st century. What happened after Facebook? What was your next move? Um, I started a company called Quora uh, with a guy named Adam D'Angelo. Um, and we had similar People who worked on it with us really early, Rebecca Cox, uh, Kevin Durr, Albert Chu, Tracy Chow. Um, and that uh, that was actually, that was why I left it. I was really enjoying working on Facebook. I just I just knew I wanted to do a startup. I'd been kind gotcha. of doing this all along. And I kind of, of course, just like wanted- question and answer, people write in, yeah. you know, what's, why is California so fun yeah. to live in? The, the idea there was kind of like, we were looking around and saying, look, the the theme of this decade is really upload a certain kind of thing to the internet and get it to the right kind of people and then Ooh. there's a big network to be at. and so like you know you can look at linkedin it's like upload your resume and then people who are interested in you or like recruiters or whatever can find it uh you know facebook is like upload your party picks and then eventually it becomes your political opinions or yes. whatever, you know, who knows what people upload there or uh youtube is just kind of like upload America's Funniest Home Videos or things you ripped from 70s TV shows or music videos or whatever, and then eventually vlogs and things like that, and like other people can see them. And um, Twitter, like sort of like upload funny short text messages or jokes. Maybe little jokes, and, yeah. And like, you know, people can subscribe to them. And so we kind of felt like, all right, what, what area is left? Like people have done photos pretty well, you know, probably should have thought to do Instagram. Um, but like, you know, <laughs> don't like, focus you know, on the missed ones. I love that you guys were sitting around thinking about what is the theme of the decade and you work backwards from that rather well, than like, I think with anything like this, you talk about a whole bunch of different ideas, but then when you sort of sure. justify which one you're going to pick, you come yep. up with a bunch of sort of models that are like, this is why this is a good one. Yes. Okay, and this cool. is like, like, um, and you know, Yelp was like restaurant reviews. And so we thought that like the thing that was kind of missing was like, there's all these people who just like know a bunch of stuff. And so like, like you must know a lot about like, you know, Boston, debate, the lampoon, like comedy, the office, yep. like they just like all kinds of things that, that people want to know about. Yep. And they're kind of like, you know, being cool, asks, being yeah, charming. Right? So, I know all about that. Okay. Right. <laughs> yes, and so then like, there's just like, and it's, there's a bunch of things where it's like, it was it felt like it was hard to blog because like, it felt sort of presumptuous to be like, oh, I will, you know, I have all these things that the world wants to hear about. Don't you want yeah, me to pontificate yeah. about this? And like some yeah. people do it anyway and some, you know, become good at it. But like not a lot of people who know a lot of stuff weren't doing that. 
And so we thought, hey, yeah. is there a way to pull that out of people's heads? And so that, it's and funny that even now the bloggers are kind of like a certain personality that's not embarrassed right. to like shoot their mouth off, like Matthew Iglesias, Andrew Sullivan kind of guys. Yeah. And so in the same way that like, you know, I wouldn't have brought up a ton of the stuff that we're talking about right now if you hadn't asked me to come on this podcast and started asking me these questions. We sort of felt like, hey, what if we create a space where people are sort of asking each other questions and helping each other out and stuff like that? And I think, um, you know, I, so I worked on that for a couple of years and I think we had, we had a really good start and it was good. And then um, eventually uh, I we had some disagreements and my co-founder <laughs> decided to kick me out of the company. Okay. Um, okay. And so I haven't, I, you know, I, I, a long time ago I left. Um, but, uh, you know, that's, that is what it is. And what you've been doing since. Now you've got Expo um, and you're working on Expo. Yeah. So I work, um, one thing that I did work on when I was at Core was like, I, we, we said this joke that we had made the last website because like about, we started that in the, you know, early 2009 and, probably about six months later, it was just sort of clear that like that, that the new app store that I, the Apple had made on the yeah, iPhone was sort of yeah. starting to take off. And then probably like, I think early 2010, Instagram came out and just sort of like, and also, but even for them, like, you know, I was already using Twitter a ton on my phone and just kind of like scrolling on like, people used to make fun of me for, you know, even before the iPhone, like on my Blackberry, people used to be like, oh, you're like, my sister would say like, are you scrolling again? <laughs> like, because I'd be, you know, be supposed to be paying attention to dinner, but you know, had this early case of super phone addiction that lots of people have now. Yeah. And so it was really clear to me that like mobile is super important. So one of the the last project I worked on was we built mobile apps at Core, and I so as I got some engineers to, and designers to work on this, and I thought, hey, we'll just do something really really quick. We'll take our mobile website, we'll stick it inside of you know a native scaffold. That should only take a couple of weeks because we already have a decent mobile website. And then I'm taking like nine months to build this iPhone app that was super basic. And then I thought, okay, well, we've already done a lot of the hard work. The Android app should be easy. And it took like 10 months. And then we ended up with this iPhone team and Android team. So um, I basically, this was like, hey, there's got to be all kinds of people in the world who have this same problem where they need to make an iPhone app and an Android app and also, you know, need to support a website as well. And mm -hmm. so then just sort of was like, why is there no good way to do that? All the ways that people have made to do that so far, no one is happy with. And so my friend James and I just sort of started researching this and then started building a company around it. And so we built this company today that is gotten pretty popular called Expo that lets you build like kind of one code base and you can deliver this application that's really high quality to wherever users are, iPhone, Android, web. Eventually we'll do desktop platforms too and things like that. Okay, very cool. So now you are you've achieved your goal of being a startup founder. What do you now? I'm interested in this idea of the theme of the decade. So you guys were kind of on last decade. Do you think you only get one of those right, or do you think you can continue to predict themes of the decade? And if so, what might be some themes of the now decade? I think that the the, the theme that is like underneath our feet right now. Well, mm -hmm. I think I still think this mobile theme is still happening. Like I okay. think that like there's still like. That's a 15-year thesis or something. Like, just like people are using their phones for stuff. And so, like, if you and there's a ton more to be unlocked. Like, I think one thing that is interesting is if you look at like what's going on with Asia, where there's in China in particular, there's fewer restrictions on what you can do on phones because the Chinese government forces Apple to let Chinese companies do more things. Um, there's like, and also just there's there was less existing infrastructure to mm -hmm. do certain things. And so there's just a crazy amount of stuff that you can do on your phones that just sort of would seem unthinkable in the West or uh, wherever. Um, anyway, so I think that's a, a that's a theme that runs all the way through the end of this decade. But the thing that's really under our feet right now that's very current, I think, is this thing where like transacting, I think, has become 
like much more okay. And so like, I'd say like, if you think about the last couple of years, the thing that's really going on that's interesting is like, do you think Substack would have worked like 10 years ago or 15 years ago? Or I think it might've worked, but it would have been like, it would have felt odd or something like that. Whereas like yeah. Substack, Patreon. And now I think yesterday or the day before Clubhouse just announced that they're going to let you like tip room hosts and things okay, that and just yeah. like do direct payments to people. And I think like, right. like, you know, I think people used to think, oh, there's uh, there's something crass about this or it'll, t- it'll make people not want to do things or whatever. Um, or like, Things should be pure or amateur, kind of the way people feel right. about the Olympics or, or college basketball, where they don't want people to <laughs> yes. get paid for for some weird reason. They're like anti, you know, you know, everyone else can get paid except the people like actually doing the hard work. And it'd be that's crazy really... if, if, like, while you're watching a college basketball game, you could tip the guy that you really like on Duke. Yeah, I mean, I think that, that kind of thing will probably happen this decade. Yes, is I, what think I think you're right. Like, because like, why not? Like, that person's making an awesome shot, and like, maybe made you a bunch of money that you bet in Vegas, or maybe just like. Like you just want to support them, and um, and so you can see like all kinds of things are moving in that uh, direction. Like Twitch streams are like an incredible example. There's just all kinds of interesting, nuanced behavior there, and so yeah, I think. Uh, and then also like TikTok, which is kind of like the big app of last year, or like the, this. I mean, it, it's like a it was a thing that was many years in the making. I think it was like a six or seven year old app that had a breakout year. But yeah, you know the top creators on that make, make a lot of money they're, and like they're big celebrities and, so, and like no one, and like the idea like that, Oh, they're an internet person. They can't make money. It's, it's really gone. And we're seeing more and more ways for people to pay for stuff. Totally. Okay, cool. So paying people, sort of exchanging and like sharing money and like a almost, I don't know, not a barter economy, but an economy where you just kind of pay someone for something you think is cool. You think that's a continual growth area that's going to keep happening. Yeah, I would expect to see a lot more things kind of like add payment into as part of what makes the whole thing tick and work. And and I think that that'll unlock a lot of some problems, but like a whole set of value adding things that offset the problems. Okay, cool. Now let's dive into stocks a little bit. It is the theme of this podcast, although we do love wide ranging uh, uh, discussion. And I've asked Charlie to bring in three stock picks and I hope he's got some, but before we get to them, let me ask you, Facebook today, I think is at an all time high. Are you like, would you continue to be bullish on Facebook? Do they have room to grow or have they peaked? Will there be some competitor? It seems like I still think of Facebook as something like your aunt uses to, to, you know, put a picture of your nephew. It's not, it doesn't seem like the coolest, fastest growing thing in the world, but the numbers are unbelievable. Uh, even if I don't really see it that much in the USA, are you long on Facebook or do you think they're, they've had their run? Um, I expect it will continue to be a strong company. I think okay. like there's kind of, there's different ways that you can evaluate a company. And I think, that yes, there's, here we go. There's one, there's one dimension that's really about like EBITDA and like looking at financials and things like that. And I think that that's yeah. very valid. Um, but I, I, you know, I didn't work at Blackstone. I didn't. Yeah. Finance, if you didn't notice, this isn't that kind of podcast. Right. But I'm saying like vibes and I guess I'm saying like, I don't feel like I, I, when I look at a company, I don't use that lens because I just assume there are professionals out there. And so like, most companies are like mostly relatively accurate. But the thing I would look, mm-hmm. when I look at tech companies, I think that the, the sort of alpha that I might be able to provide is just sort of looking at saying like, okay, like um, what kind of people are working here? What is the leadership like? What is like, yes. you know, what are the big bets they're making and things like that? And I think 
One thing I would say about um, Facebook is I do think that there are still a bunch of very good people that work there. And I think a lot of good people have left because the, the I think especially as the company sort of cozied up to the Trump administration or, you know, just sort of generally felt like it became sort of the, the big evil punching bag of the second half of the 2010s. Um, yeah. A bunch of people who were like, like, I remember when I was working there, like I had a Facebook like laptop bag and some kid just came up, like shouted at me at the airport in Vegas when we were, you know, there was probably a couple million people on the site. Like it was just a college and high school site at the time. Some people was like, whoa, you work at Facebook? And just like came over to me and like talked to me about it and was like so impressed and thought it was so cool. And I had like okay. a little sister who was like uh, just like in high school at the time. And it was like all her friends thought it was really cool that like I like that she had an older brother that worked on this thing. <laughs> and like I think for all the way through like 2015, probably it was it was like it felt like you were like proud, like you could be very proud of working on something very successful and very fun and very cool. And then, so and then now, something happened. Some series of things happened. And now yeah. like definitely like people like if you a lot of times I'll meet people, or not like I don't meet people that much because of COVID, but like, you know, if I meet people, a lot of times they'll do something where they'll sort of say, oh yeah, I work at Facebook and they'll sort of be sheepish about it and be like, you know, I have a mortgage and I need it, I need the money, whatever. but they'll sort of explain or like their, mm -hmm. their shame. Yeah. And like, that's bad. But a lot of good people are still working there because they do pay very well. And like it, like it is used by a lot of people. And so like the combination of those two things is enough that like that third leg of the triangle like if they were to lose another one of those, like if they stopped paying very well or it's right. not being used, but I think that there would be a big outflow of people, but I think that like they'll survive this. And I think that they're, they do very good execution on things like their ads business. And I would expect them to continue to do so. One thing that's going on in the world um, that I think will help them is uh, there's a bunch of like privacy regulation happening in Europe. And then there's proposals in the United States and in California. I actually don't know all the details of all these things, but my general uh, understanding of what this the likely outcome of all this is going to be um, from talking to people who do know and looking at a little bit myself is that all of this stuff that's trying to protect your privacy is mostly going to benefit Google and Facebook, who are the two biggest providers of advertising services on the internet, because they are the companies that like, if you can't share data about people and what they're interested in and what these other kinds of things are, Mm -hmm. But it's really valuable to know that to show them people targeted ads and just show them better ads. Then the only people who can do that are the people who have properties that reach into all facets of people's lives and know all kinds of stuff about what's going on with them. And so when you look at Google, when they control YouTube and Google search and Gmail and Android and Chrome, and then you look at Facebook who controls WhatsApp and Instagram and Facebook and Facebook Messenger, it's kind of like they're the people who have the, the reach and the infrastructure to be able to make like super smart, complicated technical solutions that like figure out how to do this without that much data and also have this wide reaching data. Whereas if you're some sort of like, you know, the, in the 2005 to 2015 decade, there were a lot of like small startups that were like ad networks that you do, are doing ad targeting stuff like that. And they're basically all kind of getting, uh, gonna have a tough time, I think, in just these big companies, like these handful of big companies that have gigantic reach will, I think, really like dominate even more. Now, what do you see as the big, like, what would be the biggest threat or danger to Facebook? Are you worried about government regulation or uh, just people moving on to some other platform? What are your biggest? I think it's conceivable that government regulation can become a problem, but I think it's not super likely. I think that, like, yeah. that kind of really hurt Microsoft. 
you know, uh -huh. the, the sort of antitrust lawsuit. But I think what people in the industries I've heard about that, although I, I, did, I was still a, like a student and like a young whippersnapper at the time, um, is basically like technology was just like new in this wild west, and people just kind of didn't even understand that that that, some, that kind of thing could happen. And so Microsoft had sort of not invested enough in like building connections in Washington and lobbying mm -hmm. and, and like focusing on PR. And like, I think there was a whole, if you spent a lot of time in the internet in like the late nineties leading up to this, if you were on like message boards or whatever, people would spell mm -hmm. like Microsoft with like a dollar sign yeah. as the S <laughs> as sort of like a, like especially like pro Linux people would like sort of, yeah. and like it just sort of got painted as this villain and they didn't really do much to like, counteract i mean i think like they were just kind of like we're, we're microsoft we're the best we make every yeah. computer thing you know like yeah. who cares if like some nerds think that like linux is better or like what are the <laughs> what possible consequences could there be of that and it turns out like the, the answer is that like some people will file a lawsuit and you'll have this antitrust thing that will like prevent you from doing a lot of things that would you know be really good business moves for you yes although on the other hand i think if you'd bought microsoft stock on the day that they got their like worst antitrust decision you would have done great in the long term it worked out fine yeah i mean i think that like they've done really really well and i think that like that the other i mean this is a tangent from the discussion we're on right now but i think the other thing i think is really really important with these kinds of companies is just like leadership uh because like i think it's it's even double important with technical companies because things can move really, really fast and like small changes and certain thing can have huge impacts that scale across the entirety of the business really in like a shorter time frame than say if you're manufacturing, you know, cars or something like that, which like, I remember listening to some podcast about GM and how like they'd actually, you know, there, there's this idea that like, there's a bunch of things that you could have learned from the Japanese automakers if you, and like people were saying, yeah, actually people at GM realized that like sometime in the eighties, but it took like 12 years for like those ideas to get actually spread across because there's these factories that are like right, parts right. and people, you know, like yeah. it just takes a while for these to permit. And I think that it's a lot less true in tech. And so, and so I think like Satya Nadella has done a tremendous job in a lot of ways because, and you can kind of track like Microsoft's success to his ascension, um, at least recently. I think he's done Who are the other leaders that you love in the world that you follow and pay attention to? Um, I think I always really admired Jeff Bezos. Uh, uh -huh. I just think he like, Partly just because I feel like he really hammered home these principles of like Amazon, customer-centric company, blah, blah, blah. And he has this other thing. It's like still day one. And the idea is like if you stop thinking like it's the first day of your company and you think it's day two, you're going you're gonna to become complacent and die. And, uh, you know, also just. Uh, what do you say to the haters who are like, why doesn't he pay people more? People have to shit in bottles. What the heck? This guy's the richest guy in the um, world. Yeah, I think that like. I mean, I also, I didn't love working. Like, I think it's an amazing company, but I didn't love working. <laughs> okay. Like I had. Always I had, day one sounds pretty exhausting. Can it never be day 38 and I can chill? <laughs> yeah. Um, like, like I had to end up getting, I had perfect vision until I worked there, but I had a crappy monitor that was like hand me down and then it like kind of ruined my eyes. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I saw, You're worse uh, than the guy in the Alabama factory. No, I mean, I like, and I like, my, I had to this, do this weird thing where it's um, to save money and to like remind you that they're saving money. They don't buy people real desks. Or this is probably not true. They probably moved away from this. But they would <laughs> they would take leftover doors and turn them on their sides and then hammer legs onto them. And that was your desk. And like okay. there's like a, the problem is there's like exposed metal kind of where the the legs meet the thing. And I kept like getting. <laughs> 
scrapes on my legs from my theatrical. Like, why not just buy you a hundred dollar desk? You know, right? Like, I actually think somebody even told me that doors are actually more expensive than like cheap desks at IKEA, and so it was just like complete like frugality theater. So I'm, it's, it's funny because this is a story about like the best company in the world, and it could easily yeah, right. be like a story in one of those exposés of a stupid company with a ridiculous philosophy. So I guess I think that there's probably stuff they could do there. That's like, but I do think that like at the t- I did it wasn't like horrible for like it was fine. Like it was like I was I felt like I was lucky to have a job, and it was like anytime you're doing any kind of computer programming stuff, you're getting paid. You know, it's always like kind of fun, and you're getting paid like wow, I get paid to do this at all. Um, right. And so, but and it just like wasn't that bad. And so I guess I just sort of felt like, hey, like if we're trying to be frugal and we're trying to work really, really hard and odd hours and stuff to like serve customers. That that's what a business does. That's worth it. And like, so I think that like, I actually bet that if he's thinking about it, these things a lot, I think that he probably is thinking like, we're trying to serve our customers and like, yeah, we sort of care about employees, but that's really second. Like we're all, we're going to make sacrifices here to like yes. serve our customers. And I think that cool. that's like, it's not the wor- It's like, it's not the most evil mindset. It's like, it's like pretty consumer friendly, if not employee friendly. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess, I guess, I guess, thinking about th- things from that lens, like that's why he doesn't pay people because he wants to get stuff to customers as fast as possible, as cheaply and cheaply as possible. Yeah. Um, and so, but I also, I feel like he does seem a little bit more checked out, and I, I do feel like it surprised me that when he got divorced, like I sort of thought of him as someone who would just like not, but I, I never really met him. I just only saw him at these all hands meetings, you know, that were right. in like a, a giant theater, and um, so. I don't really know him, but I, I do look up to him as a business leader. Um, the other guy that I think is a very cool dude is this guy, Gabe N, uh, Gabe Newell, who runs this company, Val- Valve. Um, okay, I've never heard basically, of these guys. Tell me so Valve is, um, it's not a stock because it's a privately traded company, but that's actually part of the story here. And cool. basically like, he's this guy who he worked at Microsoft for like 15 years. And then, you know, just like during like the heyday of Microsoft. And then sometime in like the mid nineties was just like, he and a friend were just like, you know, we always kind of wanted to make video games. Wouldn't that be awesome? We've made a whole bunch of money, like working our way up at Microsoft. What if we just went and made a video game? And so they quit Microsoft, took about all their money that they'd saved up and just decided to like spend a year and a half or I, I, I'm going to get some of the details wrong here, so, but like sure. spent a while making this video game called Half-Life, which then oh, became okay. like one of the sort of sort of award-winning first-person yeah. shooter, narrative-driven, much beloved game. game. And then they made a bunch of money on it and were able to fund the development of like Half-Life 2 and then kind of were off to the races. And then, um, so they because they had started off with all of their own capital, pretty much, they didn't actually have to raise a whole bunch of money from outside investors. They didn't ha- end up having to get bought out by a bigger game studio, which is basically what happens to like almost every single company in the gaming space. Like they're all like bigger fishes are always swallowing up smaller ones and doing weird things. And there's, so there's not that many actually independent companies. And whenever you're making these sort of big production things, there's often these huge upfront costs. And so people just tend to need to raise money. Um, and so they, and they basically just decided like, Hey, like we think a lot of these big companies are kind of like, just like too bloated with people who like don't do stuff that that's that important. And we want to keep, there's a bunch of things that are good about keeping this small. What if we just keep this company really, really small, mostly hire people who are really, really experts in their field or like our friends and just try to keep doing what we're doing. And so they, the company is only like, I think a couple hundred, I don't actually know exactly right now, but somewhere mm-hmm. in the, the hundreds of people, even though they've actually, you know, made a whole bunch of these like super popular video games all the time and then bought a bunch of other game firms. And then uh, they, they end up building this thing called steam 
which then became like is the main way that uh, computer video games are distributed. So if like you want to play like almost any video game on your PC that isn't made by Epic Games or Blizzard Activision, you're pretty much going to download it through Steam, and they have your credit card information, and they take a you know fifteen to thirty percent cut depending on a whole bunch of factors or whatever, and like. Um, they keep the game up to date. It's kind of like the app store on your phone, except that they okay. built it in 2005 for computers, specifically for games. And so the sort of not so good part there is I think that like there's actually a bunch of things that they could probably do if they went out and hired a bunch of people or kept working as hard as they did when they were going to fix And people kind <laughs> they of forgot it wasn't day one. Yeah. And I think that they like they make so much money off this Steam thing that they like don't make as many games anymore and they mostly just kind of like operate steam but i just think that they like they have done a lot of really cool things and have a bunch of really smart people and like i like that they've been able to build like a really strong business for the small set of people and not feel like they had to do and like they've been able to kind of do things their own way and and carve out their own path in a cool like a very cool way cool okay anybody else that jumps to mind as a inspiration or leader in the world of creating stuff in silicon valley i think that like I mean, I don't think this will be a surprise to anyone at all, uh, but I do think that there's something incredible about what Jack Dorsey's pulled off. Okay. Like, I think that, like, you know, I actually would, and I think that, like, Twitter for a like, long time was kind of a shitty company, I think, in a lot of ways. Okay. Like, they're, they didn't do a lot of product innovation or, like, uh, you know, build a lot of, Feature that they had, a, you know, there was a fail whale for like so many years. Mm -hmm. It was like an ongoing joke, and like, they, mm -hmm. it, like, can you imagine now, like, if TikTok was down for like an hour every day, it's just, like, people would freak out. Freak out, like the idea that like you just couldn't <laughs> find anyone to like fix your website. They was serving yeah. literally like one hundred and forty character messages to people. <laughs> like it's sort of like so that I think that there's like I don't mean that like everything, but I do think that like people like you know one thing that's like one of the most exciting things about Silicon Valley and technology in our times is like, there's this thing where you, you can make, you can have one good idea, build it. And it just blows up. Like I know some of the people working on clubhouse and like those guys have been working on apps for like years. Like uh -huh. they've been trying to build different things. Like they've been trying to build like some big hit and like had like pretty good ideas and like, but most pretty good ideas, like don't turn into anything. Like, they get like, a, your you know your friends and a couple of thousand other users and like yeah you just can't quite get them over the hump to become yeah. and like they kind of they found that magic with clubhouse and like bam it's like they hit it big fucking thing and like did you know that did, when you heard of clubhouse what the ideal was did you know okay that's gonna be your one how often do you feel like you can tell or is it a matter of I think, I, think I'm, I think that i'm generally better than the average person but i still like i'm not per like especially things where like um, what, what I was going to say about Jack Dorsey, sure. he had two hits. He had Twitter yeah. and then Square. But anyway, so when I think that about this thing, <laughs> like, like that's just incredible. But I think that, like, <laughs> like I think the first one I saw at Clubhouse, I, people were already talking about it as, like, a big, buzzy thing. And so I think I, mm -hmm. I came into it with this preconceived notion that, like, this is probably something magical. But I do think that yeah. I saw it and I was like, yeah, I get it. I feel the magic. And I think, yeah. like, but I think that there's something where, a really interesting thing about uh, Silicon Valley, probably the, the whole world, but I think it's especially true in Silicon Valley, is like things change. And so one of the, the biggest weaknesses that you can have is when you learn something, it can like hurt you. So I remember like one time, like after I like uh, 
got kicked out of Quora. I um, basically, uh, like, I was trying to figure out what I was going to do. I was just taking time off. And somebody was like, oh, Snapchat is, like, looking for a VP of engineering or, like, a head of engineering. Like, mm-hmm. why don't you know, like, why don't talk to them? And, like, uh, so I ended up meeting with Evan Spiegel for coffee or something. I, I Just the one meeting and didn't go anywhere. So I, I don't know if you remember this. But I remember we were talking about it. And he, we were talking about Snapchat. And I just remember asking him, like, and I said, when I worked at Facebook, the way that we thought about photos was like, you have this mountain of photos and like people see each other's photos and then they say, oh, I should upload more. And then they add more into the mountain. And part, mm-hmm. part, like, part of what works really, really well is you just keep accumulating, accumulating, accumulating. And it's sort of like exponential. And like, you're always growing the space. And like, so even an old photo can contribute to like making it, you know, you know, if, yes. it's, if there's an old photo of Steve Healy, his aunt will want to sign up or whatever. So like, yeah. and so it seems so crazy to me that with Snapchat that you like delete these things after 24 hours and you don't like accumulate this thing. And like, like you're always, you're just looking at the tip of stuff. And like, so in a way like that mindset or that model of like, this is how this works, like made it harder for me to see all the reasons that it was so important and so good that those photos, I think it wasn't like I couldn't get it. Like, you know, it's like you want to send something casual or like, and I eventually think I like understood that model, but I also think that like, um, like you could, and so for a while I would tell this anecdote of meeting this guy and be like, Oh, look, I learned this thing. And then it was like, I had like learned sort of like, not quite, I learned one lesson, but it was like the wrong lesson for the time. And like, it was right. this thing. But I remember like, sort of what I said to him was like, well, have you ever thought about adding some part of the product that like adds in like photos that stick around? And then it was interesting to me that like when Instagram launched stories and kind of had this disappearing stuff, it was like, oh, it actually works really, really well to mix these yes. long-term things okay. with this yeah, stuff. And so yeah, like yeah, both yeah. models are correct. And so it was like, yeah. I think maybe the Snapchat people were also maybe missing something where like they were so into this like disappearing mindset that they were missing out on the value. So I think that like sometimes if you get like so focused on like one good idea, you can miss out on an adjacent like antithetical yes. thing that works really, really well or something. And so that, cool. in, in ways, I think I'm more more positioned to see the magic. In other ways, I think I have blind spots that come because of, yeah. of all the things I've learned that that make me like skip over things that I'm like, oh, like that didn't work before. Or I've no, seen it's this. super interesting thought about shifting your whole way of thinking about something and then realizing there's probably a way to combine them and have it both be interesting. Let me ask you something, Charlie. It's just occurring to me seems like we're about to come out of the COVID lockdown to some extent. Hopefully it will stick. In California, we're opening everything up on June 15th. Do you think that Silicon Valley, greater San Francisco as a place, has a bright future? I hear a lot of chatter about people moving to Miami and whatever and Zoom. And I I can't tell how real it is. I know that real estate prices in San Francisco have been going a little little crazy. I think people kind of have been moving out of San Francisco proper. I hear a lot of complaints from tech people about like the city management of San Francisco does seem a little bit crazy and San Francisco is a little certainly rough around the edges. If you're just walking around like the tenderloin or something, what do you think about the physical place where a lot of these companies came to life? Was that a temporary phenomenon? Is it past? Do you think there's young people still going to be flocking there to do stuff? Will it move somewhere else? Ton of thoughts about this. Uh, One, I think that like a lot of things that have changed and moved digitally and stuff like that, I think they're going to like, some things will revert back to sort of in-person stuff. And it's like, but I bet we'll probably do a lot more Zoom calls or maybe it won't be, or FaceTime or whatever going forward. And that like, so that'll just become like more acceptable to be like, hey, do we have to meet for coffee to talk about this? Or could we just right. jump on a video call? Like that, like, yeah. so I think some things will change and some things will like 
revert back, but some things have be like some things have really permanently shifted, or like or a new possibility has been opened up, and like so like the, there's probably some silver lining to COVID of like moving the world forward a few years faster than it would have been in terms of like mm-hmm. leveraging digital technology to connect us in, in productive ways. Um, I think the Bay Area is super weird. Um, I think that like when I was like, it reminds me a little bit of like so went to Harvard. One thing that's weird about Harvard is my, my roommate was the tailback for the football team. And I remember like he, he was football team is really good and nobody really went to football games because everybody was so busy doing their own, like they were in an improv group or they were trying to become, yeah. you know, five beta Kappa, or they were trying to like write for the humor magazine. Right. This would have been Ryan Fitzpatrick era of football team, right? Harvard was super uh, good. He was to two years after us, but yeah, like, I think we were okay. like, so, uh, but like my roommate was Nick Palazzo, great guy, great running okay. back. Um, and like, I, like it's great. I'm friends with him. Like he texted me like two days ago. And I only went to like two of his games when we were living together because it was just like the <laughs> culture of it was just like, oh, like I'm too busy to go walk across, you know, a block yeah, it was like away 15 to go minutes away. Right. And across a, something... Somehow crossing that bridge seems psychologically. Yeah. Like, and yeah. so like there's something very like with San Francisco, it feels like there's a, everybody a, like at least in my slice of it, it feels like almost everybody is like so busy doing something of their own thing that they kind of forget about like taking care of the place. And then it's also it's exacerbated by the fact that like. People don't really, at least in San Francisco proper, it feels very much like a place where people come to from somewhere else. And like, yeah. whereas like, there's not that many people. Obviously, there's some, and especially in the surrounding areas and stuff like that. But like, there's not that many people who are sort of here for generations. Whereas like, where I grew up in Pittsburgh, it was like very, very few people moved to. I mean, I think it's more due now. But like when I was growing up, no one really moved to Pittsburgh. So it was like your parents or your grandparents probably were like right near you, and mm-hmm. like so you would you know you, if there's like a park or something or when it seems like you're thinking about it as like sort of community property in like a slightly different way. And the, another thing about the barrier is like it's super fragmented where there's all these little towns and it's like super connected ecosystem, but nobody really has that much power to do anything like right. productive because everybody's sort of nimby about everything. And um, it ends up being pretty weird, like dysfunctional place to live for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, I could probably go on for like an hour about my speculation about why, even though I, you know, I'm in this group of people who like are too busy doing digital virtual things. So I don't even really pay it. To, like, I don't know my neighbors that well. I don't know, like, you know, so I, I think that there's a lot of factors that parts make it like a weird place to live, but the weather's great. And there's a lot of, and the other thing that will keep people coming here is like, there's this, if you want to raise money, it's just a lot easier if you're in this area and people like, I think that kind of thing, it'll just be slower to, where people like if they're gonna write you a big check, right. they kind of just like, like it's nicer if like a bunch of people I know met you and like kind of know you and you're a known quantity or like you're here and I can keep an eye on you. So I think that, that I think we'll see a lot of these things where it's like the like the the leadership is probably in the Bay Area and the money is distributed here, but like the the team is distributed all over the place or in another right. City. That's that, a, that's my know, guess. That's a, at the, your That's turn. interesting. You know, anecdotally, like people have been doing Zoom pitches here in Los Angeles and like showbiz stuff. And I, I wonder if there's a like, sure, Zoom is great for working with people you've already met or whatever. But if you're going to write somebody a check, like you kind of want to be in their physical presence. And right. Look at them. Like, there's a signaling <laughs> thing, too, where it's like if it's like if somebody's like, I want to be in show business, but I don't really want to move from North Carolina to LA right. to do it. You're like. Are you really serious about this? Yeah, and like that's kind of fun. like if somebody's just like gonna do you know work on something as like an employee or something. Maybe that's fine. But like, or if like somebody, but like if somebody's like, I want to like 
start the next big thing. It does feel like there's a lot of, it's like, why aren't you going to one of these centers? And like, that could be Miami, that could be uh, Shenzhen if it's hardware. But, you know, I think San Francisco is one of those hubs and will continue to be. It does seem funny to me that there's like, this has been one of the most explosive value creation. The number of billionaires created in greater San Francisco in the last 20 years is off the charts. And there seems to be no, it, it hasn't, trickled i mean i know zuckerberg's got the hospital named after him and there's some cool stuff in san francisco but it doesn't seem to have turned san francisco into paradise everyone's always complaining about it and there's also like a total lack of responsibility i feel like these guys are all talking about moving to miami or whatever why don't you fix the place that made you rich it's really hard um a big thing is like a lot of people like like things a lot of people who've been here a while but just like things the way they are. They don't want to like, I think I would describe the platform of the Palo Alto city council as like, or the, the people who kind of won control of it as like, we don't want any more people to move here. We don't want any more jobs here. And we don't want any people driving through this area. Right. <laughs> like that's, <laughs> those are our policy goal. And like, those are kind of like fine if you just want things to be as close as possible to the way they have been, but like really hard if you're trying to move there or you're new or you're trying to start a company or these kind of things. And so I think it's generally detrimental to the, overall economic ecosystem and that bad for America, bad for the economy here. But uh, a lot of those things going on are all over the, the Bay Area, preventing housing from being built, preventing things from happening, but also maybe preserving some of the um, green space and character or something. Okay. We've, I, we've not expert. hopefully stimulated and excited the audience. Stock picks. Let's get down to it. This is Stocks Let's Talk. What do you got for us, Charlie? Today, by the way, is uh, April 7th. Stock market's booming today. It's actually, I think it's calming down a little bit, but at the moment, the stock market is going off like gangbusters. Everything's going great. As we say, this is all for entertainment, but Charlie, let's talk stocks. Okay. Um, So I made three picks, but only one of them is a publicly traded stock right now because I most of my investing has been done in like startup companies. Yeah, by the way, do you think that's a, I, I hear like, you know, when I listen to, you know, uh, Chamath Palihapitiya or something. They're all—all all these guys are making all these kinds of really cool-sounding investments in uh, private companies, and that's not really easy for the average person to get yeah, into. I think, I think it's becoming a lot easier, and that's sort of an interesting, like, thing that's happening. And like, there's these things like Forge and AngelList and uh, other mechanisms that just like are, are making it more possible. Um, right. I often think, I think about the popularity of like Shark Tank. Basically, everybody in America wants to be a venture capitalist that gets pitched crazy yeah. businesses and chooses to invest in them, but they are unfortunately mostly limited to their uh, public companies when they have to deal with their 401k. Or yeah. Whatever. Right. Um, and so sense. I think we'll, we'll see, I think we'll continue to see a lot of change in that over the next couple of years. Um, but my first, pick, my first pick is Twitter. I think like okay. <laughs> I, I was sort of talking about how I thought it was like, for a long time, just kind of a shitty company. But I think that something has really awoken in the last, is that even the right word? Something sure. has come to life in the last like, yeah. year and a half or so with Twitter. Like, you know, they're they're just doing stuff. And I think that, yeah. like, that like they've added fleets. They're like trying yeah. this clubhouse competitor thing. They're like, just, they're just doing more things and trying more things and just executing, I think, in a way that I haven't seen. And I think, I don't actually know why that is. I have sort of two guesses that I've made up in my head that I have no real evidence for. One is Love like, it. one is that I, it does seem to like it makes sense that Jack Dorsey would become just like better at running things over time. Like he's been practicing for years now. Yeah. Um, it's like, you just like learn some stuff along the way and become more and more yeah. effective. And it seems like he's doing a great job at Square. And um, 
so it would make sense that you would also learn how to do a great job at Twitter as well. Um, but you pick Twitter know, rather than Square for your stock pick. Well, I just know less about Square. Um, gotcha. And I think the Twitter, I think, probably still has this sort of, I think that like, I think something changed where something like this company that just like wasn't executing that quickly or that well or whatever, I think somehow has changed. And then this other, I have this idea that like, I don't know if this is actually true. I mean, in some sense, they were executing incredibly well. They basically got yeah. a guy elected president sort of by accident. <laughs> the, no, I mean, I think like, I think that like Twitter has always felt like something that's like really, really important, but they like they didn't do as well at sort of capturing yes. the economic yeah. upside. That was sort of, of the knock on the them. Like, how can you have like, this company and you're not making more money, basically? Right. And I think that they're like just doing more stuff. And I bet they'll make more money as part of that as well. And this, cool. I think that there's, I have this idea in my head from the outside, which I, I have no evidence of. So this is pure speculation that the, they bought this company Periscope. Um, and the guy who was running that, like Kayvon Bakepore, I think it sort of ascended to essentially be kind of like running Twitter day to day from a product angle. It seems like along with, he ended up marrying someone who worked there named Sarah Hader or Hyder. Uh, I don't know. I think Hader. Um, and I think that they're kind of like, I feel like they're maybe leading this and that's part of what's happening, but I don't actually. Okay, cool. Sure. And so that's like part of why I'm making this pick is just this like idea that that might be what's happening. I love it. Personality based pick based yeah. on largely vibes and speculation. What yeah. else you got? Um, I think that like you can't buy it publicly yet, but I bet you will be able to soon is just Stripe. Yeah, um, your your buddy Paul Graham can't stop talking about how wonderful the yeah. Collison brothers are, and they seem truly impressive. And Stripe is Stripe is for people who don't know it's a payments company, basically. Yeah. Right? It helps people all over the world make payments to each other. That's their yeah. mission. They seem very mission focused. Yeah, I think that all the things. I think that the call. I, I only know Patrick a little bit. I don't know John at all. But like, uh, the super smart, great people work there. Lots of people I know who are really, really smart and have going to work there for a while or and are they continue to hire great people. Lots of really good moves. And then there's also just stuff where like if you looked at the clubhouse announcement about um, this tipping thing where they're gonna they they made this announcement like we're gonna let people tip other people on clubhouse. Uh, and hundred percent of the money is gonna go from the person giving the tip to the creator. Clubhouse isn't gonna take any. And then there's this asterisk that's like actually like, you know some percentage of this is going to go to Stripe for Boston. <laughs> <laughs> kind of like, I feel like the internet is turning into this place where like Stripe just takes 2% of every transaction that's ever happens in the world. And just like is involved, it just like permeates the entirety of the ecosystem. So I feel like when you look at that, from that angle, it's just like, it's just controlling all the money flows of everything across the internet. Yeah. It's like, you know. <laughs> it seems like controlling payments is a pretty good way to make money. <laughs> across, yeah. And like, even real world payment, like if, so many of those things are, you know, even if I pay, you, you know, if I go out to dinner with someone now, often they'll just be like, oh, if, if we split this, let's just, why don't you just Venmo me or something? So yeah. like even things that are real world are turned digital. And so I, w I think Stripe is in a tremendous position. And like, even though it's kind of, I read that they raised money at like 95 billion or something. I, I bet it'll keep going up from there. Now you and me can't, or at least I can, and our listeners can't invest in Stripe unless they go through like one of these forge or something. I don't know. Much yeah. I think there's ways stuff. to do it if you really want to. Okay. Um, cool. But maybe, you know, that's my long-term pick. Great. I um, love it. And then the the third pick I have is even more impossible to invest in because it's earlier stage. <laughs> but I'm like, I think that this is for entertainment. And so I think I, sure. this is something that I bet will become a big company that you will 
hear about eventually. It's called Linear. Okay. And um, I am I am a small investor in this company actually. Cool. Um, but they they basically do task management software, which is something that people historically have always hated. Like mm -hmm. if you talk to any like you might not have heard of this thing, but there's this piece of software that people have used for a long time in building software called Jira, which is kind of a task tracker where like let's say you're a product manager and you like find some email that needs to have an image shrunk down or something like that. You make you mm -hmm. write write up this little task and assign it to one of the engineers that you work with, and then they can sort of fill out with status and add comments and things like that. Um, in general, people see this as just this like sure that's painful to use and like et cetera, et cetera. And I like it's remarkable to me to see people using this product that just came out like nine months ago and seeing them just be like, I love using this. This is the first time I've ever seen a task tracker that like wow, it just okay, makes yeah. my day and it's a joy to use. And like the task task tracker sounds like something from like Office Space that you would really right. Hate. And so like you know? if you, I think that there's something magical if you can take something that's so inherently loathed and turn it into something that people kind of are excited to engage with. That's some cool work. Okay, do you have any companies that you like hate and think are terrible? <sighs> a little harder, I guess. <laughs> and maybe more yeah. dangerous. Um that's really hard. I think that like the last time I felt that way about something, I really thought that shorting GameStop made sense when Blockbuster went bankrupt. But then that's <laughs> why like I'm Don't really, really, on really well, I actually think it like wasn't crazy at the time I originally thought it. Yeah. And I like you may be proven right. It's it, I think it more speaks to the danger of just like shorting in general or betting against things. Yeah, I don't um, like betting against things. It feels wrong. <laughs> I think that was part of the yeah. energy of the GameStop drive. People just don't like people betting against stuff. It just feels a bit yeah. vulturous. Right. I also just think like there's not. I almost think that like the world is like, like I hear a bunch of people sending me texts that are like, "Don't you think once COVID, everyone's vaccinated, Clubhouse is just going to die or something like that?" And I don't. I don't think so at all. Like I think like, yeah, maybe like. COVID helped it accelerate its early growth because people were just sitting at home. But I think like that's going to be around. It's going to be a thing. It's it's like a pillar. Like, and I think that people really do like to jump when people think that something might be over. They love to jump on that. And so I don't think there's that many things that are like no one realizes are already over yet that I have some special insight on. That you know, the, let's take a call actually because we have a call that I think uh, is relevant to that. So here we go. We're going to take a call. Hey, I've been wondering lately about all the stocks that really popped during the pandemic, the stay-at-home stuff, uh, like specifically the Peloton, but the Zoom and the Etsy. And I'm wondering if it's time to sell those. Maybe those had a crazy run while everyone was like stuck at home forever, or if they were just like great companies that got discovered and they're going to keep soaring. I'd love your take on that. Thanks. Uh, oh, interesting. Thanks, anonymous caller. Uh, what do you think about that, Charlie? Um, Peloton's gone crazy. Yeah, I think probably if you take a lot, like if you have this like long-term view of things, mm -hmm. probably the stuff around COVID and the stimulus and all these things is enough of a, a blip that it like makes sense to hold. And that sense that like, you know, you one part of this conversation that we've had is like about Amazon and how like, you know, if you bought Amazon stock in the year 2000 or something and just held it, like here's, you know, you'd be this billionaire now uh, or millionaire at least or whatever. And um, like, there were all kinds of ups and downs between the year two, you know, in the last 20 years, but like 
these things get smoothed. And so I think that like all these things that like Peloton does seem to be a great company that makes a great product that people really love. And like there's a bunch of things like that that I think have been revealed to be important things that people care about. I do think in there are a couple factors like, um, and the biggest thing to me is just like it feels like all kinds of things like stopped working, and so like it mm. may like or just couldn't operate. Like there are all kinds of businesses that just couldn't operate during the pandemic. Like you know a bunch of hairdressers just like had to close yeah. for a year and a half or whatever. And a lot of like, you know, event companies like you just, or movie theater, like all these things like they just had to kind of and like, but there's all this capital in the world. It needs to be flowing somewhere. And so I think yeah. that like part of the reason that like there's sort of a double effect with these companies like Facebook or Zoom or whatever, where like not only have they become elevated in importance because everyone has to use them during this thing, where it's like there's all this capital that's like, I need to be allocated to something important. What's important right now? Only digital things are important because nothing, everything else is shut down and not working right now. And so it, like, I think it probably like tilted allocation of capital towards technology-driven things. And now that the pandemic opens up, that capital will have more choices to spread itself out amongst. And so there may be an Ooh, outflow of okay. capital from technology companies for that reason. But I actually think that like, that's not, I don't think that that insight is like super deep and the kind of thing that like, a professional investor wouldn't think of if they were trying to answer this question that your right. scholar had. <laughs> and so I actually bet that like, that's probably been, as the vaccine has been released and these other kind of things, probably if there isn't that effect, it's probably likely been priced in over time. And so I wouldn't expect yeah. to see like April 15th, California opens up vaccine to everyone. Facebook drops 20% or like it's kind yeah. of like, people, people know this is coming. People know what's happening, but I would see, yeah. I would, I actually, I bet that like the window where, um, there probably is a little bit of an effect where temporarily tech stocks are like extra, you know, inflated compared to the other things. But I do think that like digital stuff is just becoming more important in our lives. And that trend is going to, underlying trend is going to continue. And just because COVID accelerated temporarily and then the, the you know, release of the vaccine will temp temporarily like reverse that trend, like the underlying thing is still happening. Like, and it's going to happen until, you know, maybe we'll just be brains and vats like, or like these kinds of things. You know, like, so don't, you don't think we're going back to more tactile, uh, there's not going to be a revolt against digital stuff. People are going to be getting analog. Well, I think, that, I think that a lot of these, I mean, it's a lot of these things like where the, the digital is still a part of it. Like, we, you know, talk about tactile things. And I, I would just bring up this example of how like, if you buy something from like a, you know, a little handmade gift seller on the street somewhere, you probably pay with your phone now using Square or some kind of other thing like that. And like, so some tech company is capturing value that they weren't capturing before when you were paying them with like, you know, renminbi or pesos or dollars. Yes. Yes. Wow. Cool. All right. Well, this was a great conversation, Charlie. Thanks so much for joining us. Anything you want to leave us with or how do you feel like you've left it on the field today here on Stocks Let's Talk? Um, just if you are working on anything where you need to build software that it reaches people on web and iOS and Android and mobile web, just check out Expo, expo.io. Expo is for all your building of app needs. Check it out. That's awesome. And Stocks Let's Talk, by the way, you can hit us up, ask us a question, uh, Talk at Gmail. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. We'll take your calls in the form of voice memos, send them in comments, questions, criticisms, fire away. Really appreciate it. Charlie, thanks so much for your time. Always super fun to talk to you. Thanks for having me, Steve.